Well, let's bow in prayer. Our gracious Lord and Savior, we are debtors to your grace and in dependence upon your mercy. We ask for you to shower us with the goodness of this high priest, better than Levi, better than Aaron, indeed, magnificently, better even than Melchizedek. We thank you for your son, the eschatological high priest. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, last week, <clears throat> we were observing some contrasts or antitheses in chapter 5, verse 10, through chapter 6, verse 20. And first, <clears throat> we notice the contrast or antithesis between the babes in Christ on their pilgrimage to Christian maturity, 5.11 to 6.3, and then again 6.9 to 12. Contrast between them and the apostates in 6.4 to 8, who just go along for the ride. Do not feed long and deep on Christ, but merely taste, only dabble, just trifle with the gospel, like tasters at a wine-tasting festival, just dabbling. The second antithesis or contrast in chapter 6, verses 13 to 20, is that which is drawn between the heirs of the promises of God. You might pick up the handouts at the back. The heirs of the promises of God who, like Abraham, are on their sojourn to an eternal rest within the veil. They are contrasted with those who refuse the blessings of the promises, those who refuse the God who swore those blessed promises by his immutable oath those who do not have their soul anchored within the veil. Now, third and more generally, last week we applied this following contrast to the whole unit, chapter 5, verse 10, through chapter 6, verse 20. Contrast between those who are imitators, in the full, rich, deep, inner sense of being possessors of Christ and his gracious benediction, and those who are merely 
external copycats, play actors, acting the religious and spiritual game, outwardly aping Christianity without being inwardly Christian. It is this general paradigm of the difference between the formal and the regenerate, the outward and the inward, which is underneath every element of contrast in this epistle. And it will continue to be displayed even as we move forward to the end of the letter. Now, to this contrast, these series of contrasts, our author adds another contrast, another antithesis in this seventh chapter, which we want to examine this evening. We noted the broad structure of this chapter last week with the contrast between the sons, I want you to note that small s, the sons of Levi, verse 5, and the son, capital S, ah, the son of God, verse 28. And he does this, that is our author, he does this once more by interfacing Abraham with Melchizedek, verses 1 to 10. But he then moves on to contrast Aaron and the law with the Lord Jesus and the oath, verses 11 to 28. Let's begin by fleshing out the structure of this chapter, repeating some of what we did last week, but advancing to conclude the entire outline that we want to fill in in your handout. So if you'll take the handout that has the structural blanks, let's take a look at how this passage falls out, remembering that I am working on the original Greek text, inspired text, and so some of the things that I note here will be in different order than they are in your English Bible, but that is because any structural paradigm must be based on the original inspired version, whether it's Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek, as the case may be. So you'll notice some slight differences, but nonetheless, uh, trust me, I'm working off of the original uh, inspired text, at least the earliest manuscript of the text that we have, which is about 150 A.D. All right, now, in the first verse of chapter 7, we have two words which are repeated in verse 10 of that chapter. And those two words form a very interesting bracket or frame around these 10 verses. Melchizedek is one of those words. It appears first, and the word met, the verb, appears second. In verse 10, 
the order is reversed. The verb in the Greek appears first, met, and it's the same Greek word. And the name Melchizedek occurs last. Now, obviously, the author has set up this structural pattern in order to draw his reader's attention or his hearer's attention to what is going on in between his frame, in between the brackets. Now, we want to look at that because he not only duplicates the words, but you'll notice that he reverses the order of them. So that Melchizedek met is reversed by met Melchizedek. It's what we call a chiasm, or A, B, B prime, A prime, which creates a kind of mirror reflection. In other words, it's a symmetrical and reciprocal harmony. But he does it intentionally in order to catch the intention of his reader and his listener. All right, now why has he made this chiastic frame? In order to draw our attention inward to the center of his argument. And the center of that argument is actually verse 5. The sons of Levi. Now, it does not appear within this unit, verses 1 to 10, why he is particularly focusing on the sons of Levi, though we may suspect from verse 3 that he's alluding to something, but he will make it clear by the end of this chapter why he is featuring or squeezing or sandwiching the sons of Levi between this initial frame bracket. Now, before we move on, we want to notice one other paradigm. In the second verse, he mentions the tenth part, or the tithe, which is uh, given by Abraham to to Melchizedek. And in verse 9, he uses those two words again. But once more, in the Greek text, we find that he puts Abraham first, and the tithe or the tenth part second. So he frames two chiastic brackets within this unit, continuing to feature at the center the sons of Levi. This is crucial to his argument. It is going to draw the sons of Levi into the drama of Abraham and Melchizedek. Because, as he will tell us, Levi was in the loins of Abraham when he offered tithes to Melchizedek. All right, so we have the first narrative unit, the first framed unit in this chapter. Now, the second unit begins in verse 11 with the word perfection. In fact, it is a grammatical paradigm a grammatical uh, uh, point of uh, of issue, uh, if perfection, which in the Greek grammar is a condition contrary to fact, and I'll expand upon that a little later this evening. But let's pay attention to the word perfection and then glance down to verse 28 and see if there is another word which is close 
to what we read in verse 11. And what do you see? Perfect, perfect forever. All right, now notice the forever is actually in the Greek text before the word perfect. The word perfect is the last word in this unit. So he is using a uh, cognate of perfection at the beginning of this section, verse 11, and at the end of it, verse 28. But he specifies in verse 28 something that he does not mention in verse 11. Forever perfect or an eternal perfection. All right, so he's moving on now to consider this issue of perfection. Now, I'm not going to expand on that just now since I want to get before us the basic structural pattern. But notice underneath the line perfection in verse 11, I've given another line before verse 12. And on that line, you want to write the word Melchizedek. And I want you to note that because you'll notice that Melchizedek occurs in verse 10 and the name Melchizedek occurs in verse 11. What do we call this? What's he doing here? Ben, he is hooking the sections together. Yes, this is les mots crochet in French, the crocheted words, the crochet pattern. So he's hooking his narrative units together. He's hooking these two parts of chapter 7 together by a word that occurs at the end of the last unit and a word that once again begins at the next unit. So he wants you to know that this is a seamless argument. This is a uniform argument. This has integrity of its own, and he hooks it together. It's like a chain-link fence. He did the same thing at the end of chapter 6 in verse 20. He hooked a word to verse 1 of chapter 7, and that also was the word Melchizedek. He does this routinely throughout this letter. He uses the hook patterns in order to keep his readers and his listeners flowing with the argument that he is chain-linking together. All right, now, in verse 12, he begins to use a term that he will use repeatedly in this section, and that's the word law. In verse 16, he uses a negation of that word. Notice verse 16, not on the basis of the law, so not law. Verse 19, following right underneath not law, you will notice he repeats the word law again. And also in verse 28, we find the word law once more. All right, so this issue of the law is crucial to what he is driving at in this section, verses 11 to 28. But in verse 19, notice what he also does. He repeats the cognate that we noted in verse 11 and verse 28. Do you see it? What is the word that I'm referring to? Anyone? Perfect. Very good. And what does he say about that in verse 19? 
He negates it again, doesn't he? <clears throat> Nothing perfect. So, not perfect, or that which is not perfect, is contrasted with that which is perfect, namely what is going to come in verse 28. <clears throat> All right, finally, <clears throat> verse 28 mentions the capital S son. We had the small s sons of Levi up in verse 5. In verse 28, we have the capital S son of God. Now there is a magnificent contrast. And now we have the real theme of what he's driving at. He's driving at this relationship or contrastive antithesis between that priesthood which derives from the sons of Levi and that priesthood which has been revealed in these last days through the Son of the Most High God, the one who is himself, as we shall see even in the structure of this chapter, greater than Melchizedek. Which leaves us with the last uh, two words to note. They appear in verse 28 and again in verse 1 of chapter 8. What two words do you see that are the same in those two verses? Very good, Robert. Thank you. High priest is another hook pattern. So, once again, he's hooking chapter 7 in his conclusion to the beginning of chapter 8 because he's going to carry on a motif of this chapter into the following uh, sectional unit. All right. Uh, any questions or any confusion that you may have about how you should fill in your blanks? Good. All right. Yes, go ahead, Mary Lou. It is 15. It looks exactly like part of 14. Yes, I repeated it so that <laughs> you wouldn't have to uh, re remember to bring it back if you didn't. And the, I could add, excuse me, I could add to it what we're going to uh, get to uh, later this evening. All right, now, <clears throat> with respect to that uh, <clears throat> statement there, first narrative unit, the answer to that is verses 1 to 10, and you'll notice on your second sheet, second narrative unit, and the answer there is verses 11 to 28. <clears throat> we have the entire chapter bracketed right now in terms of two frames, 7, 1 to 10, and 7, 11 to 28. But notice, <clears throat> there is an overall antithetical comparison Sons of Levi compared with the Son of God. The priesthood that has been revealed in these last days is not the priesthood of Aaron. It is not the priesthood of Levi. It is the priesthood of the Son of God. So there's your antithesis. He is contrasting the first frame with the Aaronic or Levitical priesthood with the second frame, which is the priesthood of the eschatological priest, the eschatological son, the very second person of the Godhead. All right, now, <clears throat> I'm going to skip over um, 
some of the material there that we did last week, including the actual story in Genesis 14, to go to verse 2 and to break down the etymology of the name Melchizedek. And I've written it out for you on the outline. The uh, portion of his name, Melchi, comes from the Hebrew word Melech, which means king, and Zedek comes from the Hebrew, also exactly the same, Zedek, which means righteousness. And therefore, you see in verse 2, where he is called king of righteousness, it's translating literally the uh, etymological portions of his Hebrew name. Now, the same is true of the word Salem. Salem is derived from the Hebrew word shalom. And most of you understand that shalom is the word for peace in Hebrew. Now, Jerusalem is called Salem in the Old Testament once, in Psalm 76, verse 2. And from the parallelism in that verse, which talks about Salem and Zion, you know there's talking about Jerusalem. However, archaeology, which uncovered a trove of uh, letters written on clay tablets dating from the 14th century B.C. in a city along the Nile River called Amarna, letters from a scribe in Palestine corresponding with the Pharaoh of Egypt. We find the Akkadian word, and interestingly, these letters are written in Akkadian or cuneiform, uh, the the language of the Assyrian and Babylonian empires. Uh, This uh, scribe uses the word or the name Oru Salim. Oru Salim for the city that we know as Jerusalem. Now, that Akkadian word, Oru, Oru means city. Salim, you can see it's close to Shalom or uh, Salem, means peace, city of peace. And in fact, there are those that can find this uh, name for Jerusalem far back into the second millennium B.C. So the word Salim, Salem, is not far removed, uh, goes way back into the history of of this city, even into the near mid-second uh, millennium B.C., 1400 years before Christ. So there is no argument about the fact that we're talking about Jerusalem as the place that Melchizedek was both king of and priest of the Most High God in. Now, some of the modern versions in that second verse talk about a tenth part I'm going to use the older vocabulary, the tithe. A tithe is just simply 10% or a tenth. And so this tithe is going to figure into the discussion of the relationship between Abraham and Melchizedek. Now, last week, we did look briefly at verse 3. And we were asking the question of the identity of Melchizedek as we examined that third verse. And what did we conclude? Who is Melchizedek? 
Ben, what did we conclude? He is a human being, and why did we say he's a human being? Notice the text. He is like the Son of God. Like is not identical with. So, we are not talking about the Son of God being equal to Melchizedek. Now, we noted that there are many people that do believe this, many fine Christian people that believe it, but they're not paying attention to the text. The word like does not indicate identity. It indicates similarity. Consequently, as we will see, even from the structure, the Son of God is superior to Melchizedek, even though he comes in the order of his priesthood. Well, then, what are we going to do with this language here in the third verse? Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but make being made like the Son of God, abiding a priest perpetually. And interestingly, if... Your versions do say something different than perpetually, therefore they are wrong. They are mistranslating the Hebrew, the Greek word here. But at any rate, we'll come to that in a moment. What do we do then with this language? Without father, without mother, without genealogy. He has no ancestral line. He has no beginning of days or end of life. Sounds like he's an eternal being. Sounds like he's not a human being. Sounds like he's an eternal being. But then he says he's like the Son of God. What's he doing here? He's contradicting himself? He's forgotten himself? He is like because these things are not recorded in Scripture. He just appears at this point. All right. Why make a point of it? Robert, what were you going to say? But why be so specific? We don't we don't have anything like this with respect to any other person in the Bible. Well, there's, there's no line of priests uh, going to Melchizedek. He was just chosen directly by God out of nowhere. So you're you're saying this language here is related to the line of priesthood, right? So it's not really re- related to whether he's human or not per se. It's related to his shall we say, pedigree of priesthood. That's exactly right. That's why the language is here. You see, the point point of this is not to try to uh, fool us about uh, magnificence of Melchizedek in terms of being, shall we say, an eternal being, but to contrast his priesthood as being without lineage, without pedigree. So it's like Christ's in that regard, or Christ is like his. And in fact, last week we noticed that there is a, a, the type of Melchizedek's priesthood is Christ himself. So he himself is an anti-type, where Christ is the prototype. All right, so we, we keep in mind what this argument is. This group of Christians to whom our writer is writing are hung up on bloodlines, pedigrees, genealogies, whether you've got the right 
stands back in your family tree to officiate. And maybe they're even raising a question about Jesus at this point. We'll take that up in a moment because Jesus doesn't have the right pedigree. And so they're suspicious that he's not a proper priest. So here is a priest who blesses Abraham who doesn't have a Levitical pedigree. And that's the point of the language. Now, going back to this word perpetually, there are some versions which translate that phrase, he abides a priest forever. That would mean, you'll notice your outline, your handout, that would mean that the Greek word would have to be Iona. It is not the Greek word that appears here. And so the New American Standard has properly translated that verb perpetually, that word perpetually, because the word forever, or Iona, is only applied by this writer to Christ. Never applied to a human. Never. That's the reason, then, that we must be careful to translate this accurately so that we don't give the impression that the old King James did give that Melchizedek might, in fact, be an eternal being. No. He has a priesthood of perpetuity in the sense that there's no successor to it. But it doesn't mean that he is an eternal priest. The words have a slightly different nuance. All right, now I'm going to go back down now to the second page of your outline. I'm going to skip over. We talked about those things last week, and you can go back and review those or listen to the online presentation and go down to verse 5. I want to take verse 5 before we take <clears throat> verse 4. And here he brings in the center of this first unit, as we've already noted, sons of Levi. The Levites received tithes. How? According to this verse. Through the law, through the commandment of the law. Now, I'm talking about the law of the priestly institution, the law of the Levitical priestly order. Let us observe here that the writer of the Hebrews is not talking about the whole Mosaic law. He is specifically focusing upon the law which orders the priesthood, the tabernacle, and the ritual of sacrifice. Now, it may be a little bit misleading for the translators here to put a capital L on it as if he's talking about the whole comprehensive system of the Mosaic law or the Mosaic covenant, but he is not. He is focusing only upon the law of the descending rights, privileges of the house of Aaron and Levi. Now, that law was specific to them. As a priestly order and house in the Old Testament, 
They had the privilege of receiving tithes. That is, they were supported by the congregation of the people of God. They did not do any ordinary manual work because they were devoted to the work of the tabernacle and the temple, and they were then supported by the gifts of the people. It relieved them in order to free them to devote themselves to that daily labor, and it was heavy labor, in fact. But nonetheless, they were not expected to work in the fields. They were not expected to build houses. They were taken care of by the congregation. All right, now, since they received these ties through the law, let's look back up at verse 4 now. How does Abraham give his ties? True, but notice if the Levites in verse 5 are giving through the law, what? Pardon? Apart from the law. Very good. So that Abraham is giving his tithes apart from the, the contrast between the fact that the law of the Levitical priesthood does not pertain to how Abraham gave his tithes. He is not under that law order. All right, then in verse 6, we discuss the genealogy. The genealogy of Melchizedek. The one whose genealogy is not traced from them, not traced from Levi. Who is this? Yeah, but it's not traced from Levi, so who is it? Go ahead. Melchizedek. It is Melchizedek. And he has no Levitical bloodline. He has no Levitical bloodline. Who else has no Levitical bloodline? Jesus. Why? True, but redemptive historically. He's from the tribe of Judah. Notice verse 14. He will make that point explicit. So... He's disqualifying, hmm? he's disqualifying Melchizedek in the first part of this narrative unit from the bloodline of Levi. He's disqualifying Jesus in the second unit of this narrative portion from the bloodline of Levi. He's saying, now look, I've got two guys here that don't have the blood of Levi in their veins. And they are both of a priestly order. The one is likened to the other, and the other reflects the one. So, listen up. These Levites aren't the end-all and be-all of priesthood. All right, so, now he seals the deal, so to speak. In verse 7, he makes... The clinching point. Without dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Who's the lesser? No. Abraham. Very good, Ben. Who's the greater? Ben? 
Melchizedek. All right, so the lesser figure is Abraham. He is blessed by the greater figure. Now, that pattern is going to repeat itself, but it's going to do it in slightly different way than what we might imagine. It's not going to be by physical descent. Verse 8, who are the mortal men? The Levites, very good. And who lives on? Melchizedek. All right, now, once again, lives on in terms of his priestly genealogy. He has none. And so he's just there and appears to have this perpetual priesthood. Now, in verse 9, Levi is said to tithe to Melchizedek. How can Levi tithe to Melchizedek? He isn't even born yet. Go ahead, Cameron. In um, Jewish understanding, they believe that all the descendants of the person is, and somehow inside the, the, the person that they're descended from. So, in this case? If everyone is, dis, all of Israel is descended from Abraham, then in a sense, all who come from Abraham is participating with Abraham to tithe. Very good. So we could call this a what kind of motif? He's done so well, I'm going to let him off the hook. (laughs) This is a union motif. Now, it is a, shall we say, genealogical union motif. Levi is united to Abraham. In fact, he says he's in his loins. That's as close as you can get. In other words, this is an intimacy which is genealogical, but is an intimacy which, intimacy which is quite poignant. The one in the many in the one. It is not foreign to biblical thinking. In fact, it's not typical. It's not peculiarly a Jewish or Hebrew. It's biblical. We are all in Adam. That's a union motif. In other words, we are summed up in Adam, as in Adam all die. Through the sin of one, Adam, we all sinned. Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15, this idea of the union of the head of humanity, Adam, and then the second head of humanity, Christ, so that all who are in Christ are united in him. All right, so we have this union theology, this union motif that's being joined with, participating in, identifying with. So Levi participates, identifies with Abraham when when Abraham presents his ties to Melchizedek. He is, in effect, there, united with him. So that we may say the seed of Abraham, who specifically in this case is Levi, tithes to Melchizedek in Abraham. The seed of Abraham tithes to Melchizedek in Abraham. The union with Abraham again. 
Well, Abraham ties to Melchizedek and to someone else. To whom? Ben? That was your last wrong answer. I'm giving you a chance to make this right. The ultimate Yes, to the Son of God. Remember, last week we talked about this very interesting horizontal type and anti-type relationship of Melchizedek being the type and the anti-type on the line of history. But in fact, verse 3 tells us that there is a type anti-type which is more profound, the vertical or the eschatological relation, namely that Christ, the Son of God, is the type and the anti-type is Melchizedek. So here we have a reflection of that. Melchizedek's prototype, namely the Son of God, is receiving tithes from Abraham as well. All right, now let's take this one step further. Who are the children of Abraham? Okay. Yes, how do you know that, Kay? Not quite. It says in the Bible. It is in the Bible. <laughs> and you heard lectures on it last spring. What book were you listening to? Galatians. Galatians. And do you remember what chapter? Maybe we should ask the lecturer. Galatians 3.7. Jack, Galatians 3.7, etc. All right. That the, those that believe... Those that are of faith are the sons of Abraham. All right, so here we have another indication of the transition, this new order, this radical new thing that Christianity brings into the world. The sons and daughters of Abraham are not according to the flesh. They are according to faith. And the same faith that Abraham had, the faith that he trusted in Christ. Abraham rejoiced to see my day and was glad. All right, so the children of Abraham, that is those who are children by faith, tithe to whom? The seed of Abraham tithes to Melchizedek. The children of Abraham tithe to the Son of God in union with Abraham because they are his descendants. There is spiritual seed. Now, follow me. Follow me. The obligation to the lesser, that is, ties to the Levites, cannot be less than what was offered to the greater, to Melchizedek by Abraham, Levi's father. Notice the pattern here. The Levites get the same tithe that Melchizedek gets. They do not receive lesser, even though they are lesser in fact. Well, what is then to be offered to the greater than Melchizedek should be greater than what was offered to Melchizedek by Abraham. In other words... If the lesser receives the tithe, then we cannot give less to the greater than the tithe, can we? 
because then we would be reducing Christ below the level of the Levites, even below the level of Melchizedek. The Son of God would be beneath them, though he is greater than they. Therefore, the tithes, 10%, should be the minimum goal the minimum goal of the sons and daughters of Abraham by faith, the cheerful giver in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, the cheerful giver of the New Testament will give in accordance with the greatness of the person of the Son of God. You start with 10% and you go up. Because he's greater than Levi or Melchizedek. We don't need to make laws about this kind of thing, do we? We do not need to make a membership requirement like the Seventh-day Adventists do that you must give 10% of your income to the church. We don't need to do that, do we? We understand who our Savior is. We understand the greatness of his person. We realize that if Abraham would give 10% to the great Melchizedek and the Son of God is greater than Melchizedek, we're not going to get away with a puny 10%. Out of the abundance of the heart, out of the expression of our gratitude and joy for so great a Savior, for so magnificent a person, that the Son of God would condescend to save me, wretched sinner that I am. Oh, how can I do anything but the like the woman with the alabaster vase and lavish upon him the riches of my paltry treasures? Now, don't get me wrong. I know there aren't a whole lot of Robert Tourneaux's out there. You know the story of Robert Tourneau who started the Tourneau Bible College in Texas years ago? He gave 90% to the Lord and kept 10% for himself. But he was a multimillionaire. He's an oil baron. Not too hard to do. No. But that was the extent of his lavish thanks to God for what he had done in saving him. The point here is, if we're thinking about what it is that we should do in gratitude, we start with 10% and go upwards from there. Now, a little known fact. In the history of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, this very small Reformed denomination of not many more than 20,000, 26,000 people nationwide, In the history of this denomination, the general rate of giving has been 20%. 20% of household incomes has gone to the support of this denomination for foreign missions, home missions, local churches. This is a wonderful, wonderful testimony and is nothing to sneer at. We won't make 20% the rule either, but we will rejoice in the gratitude of the people of God opening up their pockets.
to support the work of the church of Jesus Christ. So let's not legislate on the matter. Let's be gracious, cheerful givers out of the depth of the gratitude of our redeemed hearts, saying, thank you, Jesus, every time the offering plate is passed. Any questions? I do think this passage carries the tithe into the New Testament era. And it does so without making it a whipping post. It draws you into the great riches of giving. Giving generously because of the generous gift that has been richly poured out upon you. All right. Now, the second narrative unit begins at verse 11 with that word perfection and places before us an understanding of a term which we don't grasp naturally. For us, perfection is that which has no flaw. Perfection is that which has no sin. Perfection is that which has no blemish. That is not what the writer is talking about. Perfection here... is achieving the goal. Reaching the end of God's plan or design. In other words, the perfection of God's purpose, the completion of God's purpose, And so stepping back from this word for a minute, we ask ourselves, are the sons of Levi the perfection of God's purpose when it comes to priesthood? Terry? No, they are not. They are not. In other words, the sons of Levi and the Aaronic priesthood are not the final goal, the final plan, the final design and intent of God. He never intended them to be. They were only temporary. Only temporary. The Aaronic or Levitical priesthood was instituted to be temporal, bound by time. It would come to an end. It would disappear. It would die and perish from the history of redemption. It would accomplish its purpose, but interestingly, not even in its own strength. All right, so perfection here is not referring to whether or not the Levites were sinless. Obviously, they were not not referring here to 
whether or not that Old Testament mosaic order was sinless. I'm clear it is not. Perfection here is describing a redemptive historical progression. The movement of the history of redemption towards the purpose, the final climactic eschatological purpose. He has spoken in these last days, these eschatological days by his son. That's how this author begins this book. He will never step away from that pattern. Never. He is always talking about eschatological drama. And that includes perfection. Eschatological, perfect, purpose, plan, goal, design, intent. Now, in this second unit, verses 11 to 28, as he has set up the contrast between the sons of Levi, and the Son of God, verse 28. He details the problems of the order of the law priests, the sons of Levi. That is, a order of priests who have been uh, uh, instituted on the basis of the law of the Levites, the law of Aaron, even the priestly law of Moses. And we'll take a break and come back to discuss the 11 specific problems that he details with respect to the order of a law priesthood. Keeping in mind what we have already pointed out with the general tenor of this epistle from chapter 5, verse 10 and following up to this point, we're talking about contrastive paradigms. And that is also true here. This is a contrastive paradigm contrasting the order of the law priesthood with the order of the priesthood according to Melchizedek, or we may say more appropriately, the order of the priesthood of the Son of God. Now, the problems of that former order are listed there from 1 to 11. Keep in mind that these are all problem issues, problems of that law, priesthood, order, problems of the order of the sons of Levi, the Levitical or Aaronic priesthood. And the first one he addresses in verse 11 begins with what I called earlier the condition contrary to fact, the strong if. Now, that's simply saying that when this condition contrary to fact, if, appears in Greek grammar, it means that it's an impossibility, that something could not have happened. In other words, the fact is that if perfection could have come through the law of the Levitical priesthood, then blah, 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 but it couldn't. So it's a condition contrary to fact. 
However, what is it in particular that he's focusing on here? Now, my label on your outline is succession. What am I driving at with that word succession? As you look at the verse, what words would you suggest uh, indicate that uh, succession, the fact that succession meant there was uh, a problem with the Levitical priesthood is at stake. Are you referring to not be designated according to the order of Aaron or not? Well, we're related to that. It's related to that. But when you're talking about succession, what are you talking about? Okay, what am I talking about? I'm talking about succession. One thing that follows. Okay, so in the Levitical priesthood... Correct, from one priest to another, all right? But this is a problem. Why is it a problem? Pardon? They die, okay? Uh, We're going to make that more specific later on when we talk about mortality. But right now he's talking about what? Because of succession, because there's one after another, what kind of a priesthood is it? It's a a group that is... I mean, it doesn't go outside. Outside. Husband and wife are uh, supporting one another here. (laughs) Well, he's in front of me. (laughs) Is he making you take the back seat, Cheryl? No. It's okay. (laughs) What were you trying to say, Robert, when she was so eloquent? (laughs) Oh, that's a laugh. (laughs) It's a heretical. Priesthood, heritage. You mean hereditary? Hereditary. Heretical. Well, I hope it was. Well, uh, Cheryl, go ahead with what you were saying. You you were starting to say it was a group matter, and then it's inherited as opposed to. Okay, so you were agreeing, even though you were in the back seat, you were agreeing with the front seat. All right. (laughs) This is is a couple of things alike. Very good. Uh, I heard another word thrown out, but I didn't hear who said it. Temporary, good. Another word. Finite. Finite. All right. So the issue here is it's not permanent. Succession, meaning one priest after another, means it's not permanent. It doesn't abide. It doesn't remain forever. So this is a problem. Why is it a problem? Because it can never fulfill the perfect plan. It can never achieve perfection. All right? So, this is a problematic issue, namely that the Levitical priesthood, because of its line of hereditary succession, we can throw that in, that's fine, is temporary, not permanent. It is temporal, it is not eternal. Now, the second problem in verse 12 is that a change occurred. When did the change occur? Good, Ben. When Christ came, a change took place in the Levitical priesthood. The New Testament priesthood, the priesthood of Christ, is a new thing. It is a new order of priesthood. 
Now, that old order, having been changed, is now redemptive historically. Now, by revelation, demonstrated to be temporary. It was demonstrated to be in need of change to a permanent and non-temporary priesthood. Well, what about the hereditary issue? What about the tribal lineage? What about the tribal change? Verse 13. What tribe had the lineage? Levi. But this person belongs to another tribe. Verse 14. Go ahead, Robert. Judah. He belongs to Judah. He is not of the tribe of Levi or Judah. In other words, this New Testament priesthood, which brings the change, this new thing does not come through Levi. It comes through Judah. The old order is displaced and replaced by a new order. The new thing that appears in the history of redemption with the death of Christ is not even dependent upon Aaronic Levitical bloodline. It does go back to Abraham, but only through Judah. This is a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. And so, as a sidelight, remember the Reformed theology's emphasis upon the office of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. Priest and king are dramatically present here. In the epistle to the Hebrews, priest even more prominent than the royal Davidic line. But the Davidic line is here in this chapter, in the line of Judah. Now keep in mind that that office is unique to Christ. No one else claims the office of prophet, priest, and king. No pastor in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, no minister in the Reformed faith ever dares to claim that he is in the place of prophet, priest, and king in the church of Christ. Never done. Never. That is a major blunder, an egregious error, a theological catastrophe for any person in the Reformed faith to claim that the office of pastor is functioning as prophet, priest, and king. There is only one prophet, priest, and king. And that is Jesus Christ, the ascended Lord. So let us not have any confusion on that matter. If we understand our Reformed doctrine, our Reformed confessions, and the inspired scriptures. Now, the the third error, or problem, we should say, not error per se, but the problem, 
is in verse 14, where he describes Moses' speech. Moses spoke nothing concerning priests about Judah. In other words, the problem of the priesthood which originates in the Mosaic order is that it's not great enough. It's not great enough. In verse 16, you will notice that he says it has a physical requirement. That's the Greek word sarkic, which means of the flesh. And notice in that same verse 16, he contrasts the sarkic requirement with the power of an indestructible life. Zoetic. Now, Pete and Mary have a new granddaughter, and the granddaughter is named Zoe. And so we'll ask Grandpa Vostine what Zoe means. It means life in Greek. So the contrast that the author is making here is the contrast between the sarkic and the zoetic, between the physical or fleshly and the life which is not of the flesh the indestructible life in this case. Now, he makes a further contrast in that same verse. This is a remarkable verse for this whole unit, but also for this topic of the problem with the priesthood of the Mosaic order. Namely, the contrast between the gnomic, which is the Greek word for what? Does anyone know? Can I ask you, Cameron? Law, very good. And the dynamic, which is the Greek word for what? Go ahead, Cameron, let's try again. In the, in the verse, can you figure it out? Looks like dynamite. Power, yes, do not miss. All right, now, these two patterns of vocabulary, and I gave you the transliteration of the Greek intentionally in order so you could get a little catch, a little bit of, of the drama of what he's doing here. These two patterns are underscoring, notice, the indissoluble, indestructible character of this priesthood which is greater than the Mosaic order, greater than the Levitical order, greater than the Aaronic order, and, conclusion, greater than the Melchizedekian order, even though it is after its order. Why? Because Moses has no indestructible life. Levi has no indissoluble life. Aaron has no indissoluble life. And not even Melchizedek has an indissoluble or indestructible life. They all died. Every one of them. But this priest, from this arena, out of this order, has a life that cannot be destroyed, has a life that cannot be dissolved into its elements. Why? Why, Frank? You've been sitting back there very quiet and patient this evening. No, 
No, I'm just asking you, why? I didn't hear you. That, that, was, that was too quiet. God's plan. Yes, it is perfect plan. But now we're talking about the person. Who has this indestructible life? Jesus. How does he have this indestructible life? They crucified him. Frank? <laughs> Give the boy a chance when he starts to talk. Let him talk. <laughs> Go ahead, Frank. I'm not trying to make light of what you're saying. But... <coughs> Pardon? He is, yes, but now we're talking about more than what he accomplishes. We're talking about who he is. You identified it, identified the person with the indestructible life as Christ, correct. Why does Christ have an indestructible life if they destroyed his body or at least nailed it to a tree and it gave up the ghost? Because God said it, but he was a priest forever. But, but how can he say he's a priest forever? Who is Christ, Frank? Who is Christ, Frank? Yes. Verse 28. He is the Son of God. Alright, so the Son of God has something that none of the sons, small s of Levi, have. Nor even Melchizedek. Nor even Moses. He has an indestructible life because he's God. Can you destroy God's life? No, you could not destroy God. Could you destroy God the Holy Spirit's life? Could you destroy God the Father's life? Could you destroy God the Son's life? No, he has an indestructible life because of who he is. Now we understand the magnificent new thing that has come. If you had a priesthood from the indestructible Son of God, would you ever crave the priesthood of Aaron, Levi, Melchizedek, or Pope Benedict? You would never, would you? Would you? Would you? Seriously, would you? You would never. If the Protestant Reformation comes and says, look, Roman Catholic Church is advancing an Old Testament paradigm. We don't belong to the Old Testament. We belong to the priesthood of Christ, the new thing that has come. And therefore, every claim to be an earthly priest after Christ comes is virtual blasphemy. Do you see? However unwittingly, it is virtual blasphemy. There is only one priest. There's only one. And he's the one with the power of the indestructible life. So if you want to take a title for whatever you want to do in the church, don't take the title priest. I won't come to your church. Now, I know that breaks your heart, but nonetheless... Minister, pastor, reverend, whatever. But don't call yourself priest. Because now I know that you're arrogating. You're proud, arrogating to yourself a term that belongs only to my priest. My one and only priest. And the one and only priest for the people of God is the epistle of Hebrews teaches over and over and over again. And yet, what do the Roman Catholic commentators do with this epistle? Oh, they are imitators. They are imitators of the priesthood of Christ. That's the reason they call themselves priests. Imitators? Copycats? No. 
go back to what we talked about last week, copycats, imitating copycats. Do they possess what the high priest Christ possesses? Then if they don't, why take the title? No. Fifteen seventeen means something. It means something. It was a rebellion. It's a rebellion and a rejection of an unbiblical view of priesthood, which is the reason in all the Reformed churches, with the exception of the Anglicans, the term priest was abandoned completely. Completely. But of course, with the Anglicans, we always have to make Exceptions. <laughs> Don't we? Or do we? The Puritans said no. Off with the rags of popery. Okay, that's another side story. Does somebody have a hand up or a question? Cameron? Um, I was just going to chime in something real quick here. That um, I mean, just listening to you uh, talk about this, I never realized this before, but, um, you know, in Psalm, Psalm 110... He talks about how, um, you know, David is saying, the, the Lord, I said to the Lord, said it, or the Lord said to my Lord, you know, so I mean, that ties in, it's amazing how that, that ties in with this, that, yes. that it's, there's somebody who would descend from David, but yet be above him. Correct. Which Jesus used with the Pharisees, with the, how, how, if David is son, how does he call him Lord, that is him meaning the coming redeemer. Okay, now this order of <coughs> Levi, an external priesthood, the external ritual priesthood of the Old Testament, is displaced and replaced by the order of an eternal priesthood. And only one with an indestructible life could do it. Only the Son of God could perfect it, bring it to its accomplishment. Now, the Mosaic Law in verse 18, the commandment which is mentioned there, is set aside. Namely, not the moral law of the Ten Commandments on Sinai, but the Mosaic law of the Levitical priestly order. That is, that which came through the revelation to Moses. This commandment is set aside. And he tells us why. It is weak. It is useless. Why is it weak and useless? Because it cannot bring an eternal sacrifice. It cannot bring an eternal life. It cannot bring an eternal priesthood. It has no indestructible life in itself. It cannot even bring us near unto God, the next point on the outline. Now, when... The writer says it is weak and useless. He is saying that with respect to the new thing that is come. 
He's saying that with respect to the Christ priest who has come. He's saying that with respect to the Son of God who has come. It is not as if it did not serve its purpose from the time it was instituted in the 15th century B.C. until the, uh, Christ died on the cross. It was useful in, in that regard. It was strong to encourage the faith in that regard, but it could not perfect it. It could not bring it to its completion, realization, actualization, and fulfillment. It could draw the worshiper to long for that, to hope for that, to even believe in it, and possess the end from the beginning, to know the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen, to see the unseen and to grasp it through the types and shadows that were there. But it could not perfect it. And so, therefore, it was weak and useless in relationship, in comparison with what Christ has brought. Verse 19, it could not even bring us or draw us near unto God. Why couldn't it bring us near unto God? Why couldn't that Levitical priesthood bring us near unto God? Terry? Because it was sinful. That's related. But what's the symbol of sin in the tabernacle, Terry? The the sacrifices? Mm, They're what take the sin away. What's the symbol of sin in the tabernacle? What's the item in the tabernacle that symbolizes sin? Sin keeps you from God. God. What was keeping you from God in the tabernacle? Go ahead, Loretta. The veil. The barrier. The barrier between the outer court and the Holy of Holies, the most holy place where God's dwelling was. So the veil was always there. True, the high priest was allowed to go behind it once a year, only once a year. But it was always a reminder that as you stood outside that tabernacle, you looked in the open window or the open door of the holy place, not the holy of holies, the holy place, the outer, uh, the outer room. You couldn't get all the way to the Ark of the Covenant. You couldn't see it. It was always veiled, always barred to you, nor were you ever permitted to go there yourself. And if you dared... You were likely to be struck dead. Okay, so it can't bring us, this priesthood cannot bring us near to God because it is always barred. Perfection is something it cannot achieve. It can't tear that veil down. Well, when did the veil get torn down? So now you understand the significance of the tearing of the veil of the temple from top to bottom, from heaven on down, from God ripping it and saying, come and welcome to Jesus. Come into my most holy place. I've opened the way. There are no barriers. Through the broken body and shed blood of my son, 
you are welcome. Don't stay outside. And don't go back to a tabernacle or a temple which closes the door to you. Because if you do, I'll finally destroy that temple in order to make an exclamation point upon the fact that in history, that's not the way to come to me anymore. So you can put that, tab- you can put that veil back up after my son dies, but I'll destroy that whole building in 70 AD, and you'll never rebuild it. And they haven't. And they still long for blood sacrifice. But they can't get it because they won't believe on Christ. Except for the elect among them who will. Wonderful story of two Jews, husband and wife, reading the Bible, coming to Ligonier, Pennsylvania when I was pastor there staying in the Holiday Inn, coming to my church, reading the Bible in their motel room, coming to Christ through reading the Scriptures. Both marvelously converted. Elect Jews in these last days. And there are more. There are others. They will be grafted into the branch of the Gentiles. Six, the problem of no oath. Verse 21. This priesthood of Levi and Aaron was not confirmed by an oath. It was confirmed by a law commandment. Which takes us back to verse 16 again. Namely, it is sarkic in character fleshly, physical, but it needs to be zoetic. It needs to have life in it. It needs to have the oath of one who confirms life to it. It needs to have life which is more than physical. Obviously, the contrast between sarkic and zoetic is ontological. This is Absolute life, metaphysical life. This is life of an eternal being, not a sarkic being. An indissoluble, indestructible life. And so the oath seals that order of priesthood because the oath goes with the person who has the life of the oath giver, the oath maker. Number seven, the lesser, verse 22, the lesser covenant is this old covenant, this old covenant priesthood. It is inferior to the covenant, the the better covenant, the new covenant priesthood, a covenant which he's going to unpack in the next chapter in detail. Why was it lesser? 
because it was not perfect. It is an imperfect covenant. It cannot bring its accomplishment. It cannot perfect access and approach to God. There is always a veil in the way. This one is guaranteed by the one who has the ontic life, the indissoluble life. This is the surety of the better covenant, the new covenant. What's a surety? What's a guarantee? One who assumes responsibility for another's debt if that person is unable to pay. Neither you nor I are able to pay the debt we owe to God. We need a surety. We need a guarantor. We need someone to guarantee payment on our behalf. And that is what Jesus did in this better covenant of eternal and everlasting forgiveness that he has shed abroad in history and in the hearts of his people. Now, the next element is mortality. Verse 23 and 24. Namely, the fact that the priests of the Levitical order died. And the contrast here is with the priest who is immortal or forever. Verse 25, he does not die. And of course, we're back once again to this contrast between the sarkic and the the zoetic. They die because they are physical. They are of the flesh. He does not die because he has an indestructible life. He is an ontological person. They are temporal. He is eternal. Their life is terminal. His is interminable. They perish. He is imperishable. And so the order of priesthood he brings is completely perfect in all of its details. Verse 25, they could not save. He is able to save. Why could they not save? Because they died. What are they dying for? Their own sins. But Jesus died. He dying for his own sins? No. He is sinless. Then why does he die? He dies for our sins. He is a vicarious offering, a vicarious sacrifice, a substitute. He is dying in our place. He has no guilt of sin or stain upon him, and yet he takes the penalty. He bears the punishment. Because he alone can bear it and wipe it away completely. If he were a mere creature, he could only die for a creature's death or die a creature's death himself. 
But if he is not a creature and dies, then the weight of his death is an eternal weight of glory and satisfaction. And that's exactly what you and I need. We need an eternal satisfaction for our eternal debt. And this one comes and says, I will do it because I am an eternal person. And when I die, I will die for your eternity worth of sin. And multitudes upon multitudes of eternities worth of sin for my chosen people out of every nation, tribe, and tongue under heaven. I will do it for them because they are united to me when I hang on this tree. They are in me as I am in them. Well, you see, now it's a lot easier to understand particular redemption, is it not? Because Judas Iscariot has made it very clear that he is not in Christ. And Christ has made it very clear that Judas Iscariot is not in him. And so we cannot make the blunder of romanticizing and sentimentalizing the death of Christ on the cross to say that everybody is being saved there by Jesus. He's paying the price for everybody in the whole wide world. No. No. He's dying for his people. He shall save his people from their sins. Well, number 10 is the problem of the sinfulness of that other priestly order. They are not holy. They are unholy. They are not innocent. They are guilty. They are not undefiled. They are corrupted. They are not separate from sinners. They are sinners. They are not exalted above the heavens. They are buried in the ground. But the Son of God is. He is all of those things that are necessary for a priesthood of a perfected order, a completed and accomplished order of priestly intercession. He is the Ephapox. He is the once for all offered up. He is the eschatological once and for all. He is the eschatological priest. As he is the eschatological offering. As he is the eschatological mediator and intercessor. There is no other after him. He is once for all finished Final, that is it. You need go to no other. He will not turn you away. 
but you need no other. He is sufficient, and he alone. The final problem of that former order is in verse 28. They were weak. Weak because they were imperfect. Not weak because they were sinful in and of themselves, but weak because they could not bring to accomplishment what God foreshadowed and typified in them. When they served faithfully, they served well, but they served an understanding that they were only an anticipation and a spiritualized projection of what needed to come. Don't bother me with this nonsense about is it right to spiritualize the Old Testament. Give me a break, please. Read Hebrews. You can't do anything else with it if you're talking about the relationship between type and antitype. Between what is embodied by projection and anticipation in the Christ-like figures of the Old Testament and in Christ himself is the very spiritual fulfillment of that. Don't bother me with that discussion. It's nonsense. As every New Testament-inspired writer knows and tells you, if you read the Old Testament the way he, that is, the New Testament-inspired writer, reads it, They read it spiritually. That is, of the arena of the spirit. Not only the Holy Spirit, but the spirit world of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's how they read it. Because they see all of the Old Testament speaking of Christ and that arena. Well, the perfect priesthood has been made perfect forever by the one who is the perfect forever priest, son of God. The writer of the Hebrews won't let you get away from the son of God. From the first part of his first chapter to virtually every part of every other chapter, he will not let you take your eyes off of the Son of God. Well, that's glory. And that's life before the face of the Son of God in this world. Let it encourage you and draw your heart up to your great high priest. And let you treasure him for all that he has done through his indestructible life to give you that indestructible life forever. Any questions or comments? Cameron? Um, you were talking about how the oath refers to God making his promise and bringing life through that. 
Um, I've never really, I've never heard that before. Do you think that ties back to Galatians something? Um, Galatians three. I'll find it here. Galatians 3, 19 and 20. <clears throat> the issue of the promise there in Galatians 3 is similar to the use of the promise motif in the previous chapter, the heirs and promise. And there he also goes into the discussion of the oath that uh, arises from the promise. Whether there's a direct dependence upon that same paradigm here and there in Paul's thinking, I'm not sure. Uh, that's a question that you may want to put to Professor Sanborn, who's in the back there, because he is our resident expert on Galatians and has done a great deal of work on that epistle. The reason I'm being <clears throat> a little cagey is not only do I not know as much about Galatians as he does, but uh, you're asking a question that makes me come to grips with the relationship between the writer of Hebrews and Paul as theological thinkers, as thinkers about the person work of Christ. I don't see them working in the same way. That doesn't mean they're working against one another. I see them working in complementary ways which enrich our understanding of the multifaceted work of Christ, God in Christ, for our justification, which is the key element there in Galatians, and for our being priest mediation being brought near unto God through the priesthood of Christ in Hebrews. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, I'd have to nuance you know, my, under, my, my study of Hebrews by thinking, okay, now what would Paul say here? I go back to Paul and say, all right, now what would the writer of Hebrews say here? So I'm taking a somewhat non-committal response to your answer because there are issues there which are broader than you know a kind of glib retort. Um, I don't want to be glib, but at the same time, I don't want to ignore what you're saying. So if you have time uh, to stick around, bounce it off of uh, Professor Sanborn and... Uh, <clears throat> and uh, see what he has to say. That's the, re that's the reason we have a, 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 a variety of faculty members here. We, we have job descriptions. His job description is Galatians, Romans, and Paul. <laughs> Scott, did you want to say something quickly? Uh, I, yeah, I, I just uh, was wondering if at the last, verse 28, actually there's a couple of comments, but I'll stick to the last one, and verse 28 appoints a son, of course, the NASB, who says, made perfect forever. Is it possible that the writer is acknowledging the redemptive historical transition that actually takes place in the death and the resurrection of Christ, just as Romans talks about Christ being justified, that perhaps the author is speaking about Christ, yes, who is perfect forever, but now manifesting that perfection in a redemptive historical manner by being made perfect in the resurrection. Yeah, I think that's correct. Yeah. Do you want to respond to his question or do you want to huddle with him afterwards? Well, I can huddle with him afterwards because I have to get it more clear. Okay, then that's fine. Then, we'll, then we'll, we'll leave it. If he has time and you have time, then...
the, the two of you can have a scrum or something. What? A scrum. That's Australian football playing. <laughs> All right. Well, blessings on you. We'll see you next week, and we'll, we will look at chapter 8. I won't promise you we'll get any further, but nonetheless, we will aim to uh, tackle chapter 8 next week.